And I'm going to ask uh, David if he'll come up and read our scripture reading for this evening. Tonight's scripture is Luke chapter 20, verse 45 through chapter 21, verse 4. Starting in 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for an opportunity to open it, um, to see you presented to us, to see your character, to see your grace, to see your love. Um, God, that you would use your word to shape your people. You would open our hearts to it this evening. Father, we thank you for all the many blessings that come along uh, with uh, being able to worship freely, uh, to uh, be here uh, and and gather uh, and be unhindered in our gathering. Um, God, that we can worship as as we feel you have called us to, uh, not fear infringement from from neighbor or or uh, government or enemy. God, that you bless us with these freedoms. And so we thank you. God, we thank you for this season. And we thank you for, God, the way that you work during the Christmas season where um, a world that goes about its daily lives um, in day in and day out, um, ignoring you, um, forgetting that you are there, forgetting that you are working. And yet at during the Christmas season, during the Advent season, God, our eyes are cast towards uh, your son in a special way, even for those who do not know your son, there is at least um, the hope and the possibility of, of an awareness there. God, we pray that you would use that, that you would use um, people going home for the holidays and and joining together with family at church services. God, as they sing carols, as they, um, God, even as they watch movies and and uh, hear uh, the good news of Jesus Christ, God, that you would use that to draw people to yourself. Father, we thank you for the gospel-believing churches of Blunt County, and we ask that you would use each of them in this season, um, that their witness would go forth, and that uh, you would work through that witness calling people to yourself. Uh, God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for being able to be a part of what you are doing in Blunt County. Uh, we ask that you bless us in that endeavor. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, we are uh, continuing in our study of the Gospel of Luke. And so I thought I'd start by kind of making a, a comment that 
uh, about a tradition that we have in our family. These things, I'm going to turn these out. I feel like I'm like hemmed in by them a little bit. Um, uh, and I'm probably going to do some hand motions too. So, uh, but our family is part of our, our yearly Christmas tradition. It has been probably for about 10 years at least or so is we go and see the Christmas carol. All right. And so, uh, you're probably familiar with the Christmas carol. Um, the, the story, the short story by Charles Dickens that has been made into a number of movies. Uh, the, the uh, Clarence Brown Theater on University of Tennessee's campus does a production every year of, of the Christmas Carol. And so uh, we love it. It's part of our sort of Christmas tradition every year to go see it. We saw it this past Friday night. And it's, it's a beautiful story of repentance. It's a story of the reclamation of a life that had, had gone astray. Um, and in that reclamation leading to, to kindness and generosity into a changed life. So again, you're probably familiar with the story uh, of Ebenezer Scrooge, who is this tight-fisted, uh, miserly old man, um, who through a series of revelations in, in the story from the ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future, uh, is taught the real meaning of Christmas. Right? And that's a phrase you hear a lot at this time of the year. People start talking about, well, what's the true meaning of Christmas? What's the real meaning of Christmas? Well, we, as followers of Jesus Christ, know what the true meaning of Christmas is. Christmas is about the Christ. It is about Jesus. It is about the advent, the coming into the world of the Son of God to be the Savior of mankind. That is the real meaning of Christmas. And so when you come to a story like the Christmas Carol, those themes are a little bit they're less explicit, okay? And that's not to say that when you read the Christmas Carol that you do not see Christian um, imagery and teaching there. You certainly do. But that's one beef I've got with Dickens is that I wish he had made it just a little more explicit when he was writing a Christmas story that Christmas is about Christ, that it is not just about brotherly love and charity and humility and generosity, okay? But having said that, those same themes generosity, charity, humility, faith, those things shouldn't be thrown out like the baby with the bathwater, okay? We should recognize that those are the themes of Christmas too. That is the meaning of Christmas too, because that is the character of Jesus Christ. And so these things are tied together. So what I, what I think is the case is that when we come to this passage, it sort of providentially works and connects as we have, have come to Luke, the end of chapter 20 of Luke and the beginning of chapter 21, that it makes a great Christmas message. Also, providentially, the fact that we are beginning our Lottie Moon Christmas offering on this day, this passage takes on particular importance as we talk about it. So, yeah, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage, and and basically what's going to happen is there's going to be a juxtaposition between these one group and this one lady, okay? We have this group of people who are talked about in the end of chapter 20 who are the teachers of the law, the scribes. And then in chapter 21, we have this poor widow woman. And I think these two passages are next to each other for a specific pers- purpose. They connect because they are demonstrating... Um, Now, you'll remember, as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 20, we've been seeing the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees over and over again throughout the the course of chapter 20. And what have they been doing? They have been testing Jesus. They've been trying to trap Jesus, whether that is 
get him on the wrong side of the politicians or get him on the wrong side of the people or get him on the wrong side of the theologians, but they're trying to find a way to discredit and to trap Jesus. And so one way we could read, especially the end of chapter 20, is just sort of a summary statement of that. It could be a passage that we get to the end of this story after story of the scribes and the Pharisees acting in a wicked way towards Jesus and come to the end and say, well, he's just sort of closing that out saying, don't trust these guys, okay? Don't listen to them because they're 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 not good dudes. But the very fact that it mentions in there, in verse 47, that they devour widows' houses, and then the very next story is about a poor widow, I think makes a connection between these. So it's not there's not a hard stop at the end of chapter 20 and saying, well, it only relates here. These 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 passages flow into each other and, and relate to each other. And so what we see. And what we'll do is we'll kind of look at some characteristics that we see of, of the scribes, and then we'll move on and look at some characteristics of this widow woman. The first thing that we see with these religious leaders, these teachers of the law, is their pretense. The first thing we see is the pretense of the scribes. So look what it says. It says they walk around in flowing robes, and they love to be greeted in the marketplaces. So what does that mean? The scribes and teachers of the law were intent on using their position in society to elevate themselves. They want to be seen. They want to be noticed. They want to be respected. And I think here's something that is hard for us to admit on an individual basis. Is It's hard for us to admit how important other people's opinions are of our lives and, and actions. I think the case is probably this. Most of us in here would like to think of ourselves as very independent, uh, free thinking, not influenced by those around us. We would like to think of ourselves as people who say, you know what, I don't care what other people think. Uh, I'm going to live my life. I'm going to march to the beat of my own drum. Um, I'm going to live my life the way I see fit. And the truth is, is you probably don't care about what everybody thinks, okay? There are lots of people out there in the world that you really don't care what they think, okay? Um, but I'll bet it's also the case that there are certain people who you care very much what they think, whether that is family, friends, coworkers, people in your social circles. And again, on one level, that's not bad. That's normal and natural. It's not a bad thing to want to and yet there's a warning for us. There's a warning because we have to be recognize the danger, the pull of those things and ask ourselves the question, what would I be willing to do to make the people who I wanted to impress respect me? What would I be willing to do so that I could be in the circles that I feel like are important? Because that's part of the problem with these scribes. There's a pretense about them. But it's not just that. That attention they want, that respect they want, is not just for the attention and respect, but they want the power and the position that comes from that. Because the next thing it tells us is they want the most important seats in the synagogues. All right? Those are the ruling seats. Those are the seats of authority. Um, those would be the seats of the elders, the people who have a say and a voice. They want the places of honor at banquets. They don't even, they don't just want to be accepted. They want to be exalted. They want to have preeminence. They want to be the ones who are sitting at the top of these 
communities. They don't just want to be in, they want to be pulling the strings. They want to be steering the ship. And again, there's not, there's something there that's not just intrinsically wrong. That's what, how leadership functions. Okay. If you are somebody who says to yourself, I have something unique that I can bring to the table and I want to use that to serve other people and to help them, right? Then there's a, there's a natural goodness about trying to step into a place of leadership or authority. But I don't think that's what's going on in this passage. That is not how the scribes and uh, the teachers of the law are using their power. And part of the reason why we know that is by the very next thing it tells us in verse 47. Because we see the way that these attitudes are moving towards their own self-interest. Look at verse 47. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. So they use their position to benefit themselves, to take advantage of other people, and particularly to take advantage of the most vulnerable people. Now, again, we don't know from this passage the specific context of what it means that they are devouring widows' houses, but we can probably pretty easily imagine a scenario. So an elderly woman who who maybe doesn't have any children, maybe her, obviously her husband has passed away. Um, she has resources. She has a house. She has an estate. She has whatever, but she doesn't know what to do. She's she doesn't know how to use it. She doesn't know what she how she should invest or save or spend or all these things like that. And so she needs somebody she can trust to go to to talk about these things. And so who does she go to? Well, she goes to these godly men these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, certainly they will help her. Certainly they will um, do right by her, except what happens? We see the cases they they do not do that. The scribes, the teachers of the law, take advantage of these widows. They use her vulnerability for their own personal gain. It uses that word devour. That's a strong word devour, they devour widows' houses, right? We get the picture of an animal that's coming to a feed trough, right? With with no thought for, you know, how much you should eat or how much you should save or do other people have enough, nothing. You're just there to, to take and to use up. That's the picture that we get of these religious leaders. Devour is a particular word. And then what do they do? They, it says they make a show They put up window dressing with their elaborate and long prayers so that everybody will think they are godly. Everybody will think that they are good all the while while they are destroying people's lives. So again, we see a picture of these scribes and Pharisees. We recognize, and as we've gone through the book of of, uh, the Gospel of Luke, we've seen the corruption that had become part and parcel of uh, the religious leadership in Israel, right? And there's a stern warning at the end there. What did it say? It said, these men will be punished most severely. All right. That is a word of warning to us all, particularly to me. All right. Now, here's the case. I don't think there is a a double stand. There's not there's not two standards by which we are to live. It's not like leaders live by one standard and, and, and non-leaders live by other standards. We are all called to the standard of Jesus Christ. But I think what say, he's saying in this passage is it's, it's not that there's a different standard for leaders, but those leaders will be scrutinized more because they should have known better. 
right? You probably had your mom or your daddy say that to some point at point, you know, right? That she, the, they call down a group of kids and they're like, you kids are doing wrong. And then they look to you and they say, and I know you know better than to act this way, right? I've heard that from parents before. And so that's sort of, I think what God says to us is that these leaders will be judged more severely because of all people, they should have dealt in kindness and in faithfulness, and yet they act wickedly. But the widow's example of life is very different. The widow looks completely different than, than the scribes. So we see this in chapter 21, and it talks about, it says Jesus there in the temple looked up. And he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people have, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So again, we see certain characteristics in this uh, poor widow. The first thing that we notice is her humility in her giving. It says she puts in these two very small copper coins. All right. So these coins are probably what were called the lepta. They were the smallest increment of the Hellenized Greco-Roman world in terms of, of, of a monetary increment. Okay. They were basically the same as our pennies. Okay. And just like our pennies, they were functionally worthless. Okay, Um, man, I don't know about you, but I don't even bother to pick up pennies anymore. You see a penny on the ground, I just keep on walking by because it's almost not worth the energy it takes to reach down and grab it. Nickels, borderline. I'll I'll stop for a dime and definitely for a quarter, but like, but, but not for a penny. Okay, Um, I just keep on walking. Well, that's the case here. These coins were functionally worthless. Monetarily, they almost had no value. And there's a humility of the widow that is seen in the comparison of her gift to these huge gifts that other people are giving. So you may have remembered the story from other places in the scripture where there was this money box, a metal money box there in the temple. And so as as the rich and the powerful would come in, they would take their bags of money and there was an opening in the top of the chest and they would dump their metal coins into the metal box and they would pour in and clang and clatter and make this racket. And everybody in the temple courts would kind of be like, man, Who's that guy? What's he giving? How much money is he giving and putting into the box? And yet this woman takes her two little copper coins and drops them in the box. And there is probably no noise. Nobody hears it. Nobody would look that way. Nobody would notice, right? Except Jesus notices. Jesus, it says specifically, Jesus looked up. And he sees the rich putting their coins in. And he also sees this poor woman putting her coins in. And Jesus honors her gift. It's probably the case that she felt almost ashamed, I would bet, to put those coins in. You've probably all experienced this. You probably have memories from childhood. Um, Man, there's something about... Um, when everyone around you has got a certain level of things and you don't, 
Okay. And you probably, again, you remember maybe when you were a little kid and you didn't have the right clothes, or you didn't have the right gear, um, or you didn't, uh, your family didn't belong to the right things or something like that. And there is this, there's this weird thing that happens in us. Like there's a feeling of almost shame, right? And we try to grow out of that as we get older. And yet I think there's still a little residualness of that sometimes in our own lives. I have a feeling like this woman felt that way when she came to the table. She felt, um, like maybe she wasn't even in their league to give. And yet what we find is that Jesus basically says, no, it's not. The problem is not that you're not in their league. The problem is, is that they are not in your league when it comes to giving. Because he says in verse three, truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put more in than all the others. In God's eyes, this lady has given more than everybody else has. God is honored in this case, not by the size of the gift, but by the heart in which it was given. Because again, in a very real sense, God doesn't need our gifts. All right. He doesn't. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the Bible says. The earth belongs to him and all the fullness thereof. Right? God doesn't need anything from us. He invites us to share in the mission. And that is an honor for us to be a part of that, to give, to share our resources that he has given to us and to give them back into his kingdom. But he doesn't need anything from us. And so the key here is that God is very concerned with our heart in giving. In fact, that's what we find when we come to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there are a lot of rules. There's a lot of regulations to giving. There's numbers and percentages and all these things. And when we get to the New Testament, a lot of those numbers fade away and the emphasis becomes not on the numbers, but on our hearts. Are we a cheerful giver? In fact, I had a lady come up to me in, in service this morning. It says that little Greek word is actually a hilarious giver, okay? Which is sort of weird. Um, you've always heard of a cheerful giver. What about a hilarious giver? A person who is giving with joyful abandon. That's the picture that we have. God's more concerned with our hearts than he is the size of our gifts. Because the reality is, is, our giving, the way we use our money, we have to recognize, is a thermometer of our devotion. It is a thermometer of our devotion, all right? We can tell a whole lot about where our hearts are at by how we give. It's not the only one. Our time is a thermometer of our devotion. Our attention is another one. And maybe another one that we see specifically in this passage is not just what she gives, but the fact that she gives it, not just in humility, but sacrificially. That is a second characteristic we see. This woman gives sacrificially. So what does that look like? When verse four, it says, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. So you're probably familiar with the name Elon Musk. Elon Musk has been in the news a lot lately over the, over the last few months for all kinds of different reasons, right? And so I think the case is, is that he is currently the richest man in the world. That sort of seems like it changes a lot quicker than it used to nowadays, but he is the richest man in the world. Elon Musk's net worth is, is well over $200 billion. Okay. That's a lot of money. Now let's imagine that Elon Musk came to town. Uh, that he stayed up at Blackberry or something like that, right? And he thought, you know what? I want to experience some of that local culture. 
And so he drove into town and he saw this church meeting on a Sunday night. And he said, I'm going to step in there and, and go to this church. And, and, uh, he heard, you know, some guy give a message on giving and he said, man, he felt convicted and he took a million dollars out of his pocket. Cause I'm sure he just keeps millions of dollars in his pockets all the time. Right. And he takes a million dollars out of his pocket and he puts it in our offering plate at the end of the service. And, and, and gives it to our church, right? Now we would look to that million dollar gift and say, how incredibly generous. Like that would be, I mean, that is a, a number that would be, it would blow us away, right? Man, what would we do with a million dollars? Like that would be an incredible amount to us. But notice something that that would be barely noticeable for Elon Musk. A million dollars would represent a hundredth of a percent of his worth. So while we would rightly call his gift generous, it would be in no way sacrificial. And that's the distinction of this woman's gift. So when we think about giving, there's different ways that we can think about it. So for one, the Bible seems to tell us to give proportionally. Okay, that's an important standard and marker of giving. We're supposed to give proportionally. So if you think about the concept of a tithe in the Old Testament, the tithe literally means 10%. It is a tenth, okay? Percentages are always proportional, okay? That's what a percentage is, okay? And so, so if you make $100, you would give 10. If you make $1,000, you would give 100. If you make a million dollars, you would give 100,000. All right. There is a proportionality to the standard of giving in the scriptures and proportionality is a good thing. Okay. So it's good to give proportionally, but then we also see many places in the scriptures that have a different idea too. the idea of giving generously, giving over and above what would be proportional over and above what would be expected and normal to give. Generosity is commended in the scriptures. That's another concept. Now, here's the deal. This woman has done something else, though. She has not been proportional in her giving, right? Uh, There's nothing proportional about what she has done. And she has been something much more than generous in her giving. She has been sacrificial in her giving. She has given in a way that will significantly affect other avenues of her life. And because she has given these last two coins, she will have no resources for anything else. Food, clothing, shelter, comforts, conveniences, luxuries, whatever, these will all potentially be sacrificed because this woman has given her last two coins. So I was thinking back on Christy and I's marriage and relationship. So from the, from the get go of our relationship, we made a commitment to tithe. And so since, since we've been married, every time we get paid, every time I get a paycheck or if she was working, every time she get a paycheck, we take a tenth out and we put that tenth. Um, we, we'd have to do the envelope system, the, what's it, uh, Dave Ramsey, right? And we, so we put that, we literally put the cash in an envelope and have it held to the side. And then, and then we give that to the church or charitable causes or whatever at the end of the month. And by God's grace, we have done that faithfully. It's been a commitment. We have given proportionally. On some occasions, we have given generously to different things. 
So the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is a great example. We try to always give. It's not part of our tithe, right? We don't take from our tithe to give to Lottie Moon. We always say, hey, we are going to take other money that we would have, and we are going to give for the cause of missions. Above and beyond what would be proportional in our regular giving. And here's the deal. I hope that that will be a concern and care that God lays on your heart too. Because the reality is, is that we are called to care about the evangelization of the nations. Okay. That should be one of the prime things that we are concerned with as followers of Jesus Christ. And that will include giving and praying and going and all the rest. And so on occasions, again, by God's grace, we have been able to be generous to various causes. But here's the deal. If I'm honest, we have very rarely been sacrificial in our giving. Very rarely have we sacrificed anything so that we could give more. We've not given in an, to an extent or in such a way that we had to sacrifice for it. The sad thing to think and to recognize is that we have sacrificed for other things. We have sacrificed for vacations. We have sacrificed for big purchases. We have sacrificed for all kinds of things. But we haven't sacrificed in our giving. It's just a realization. I don't think there's a command per se here to give sacrificially, okay? So here's something to notice about this. This woman is a widow. She doesn't have some of the responsibilities that other people might have. If she had children who were in her household to feed and she gave away her last coins, it might still be a noble act of devotion, but we would probably look at that and say, I think that was unwise. You have other responsibilities that you have to, to, to meet, okay? And so I don't think the standard that we're seeing here is, is Jesus is commanding these things. But what he does do is he acknowledges it and he honors it. And he says, what you have done is good and noble and righteous. It reminds us of the story where the lady comes and she takes the, the bottle of precious perfume and she cracks it open and she pours it on Jesus' head and on his feet. And the disciples look on and they say, what a waste, man. That's like a year's income. We could have sold that and given it to the poor. And Jesus says, it's not a waste. And the reason is because it's about what you're spending it on, right? Jesus was worth the perfume. Jesus was worth these two coins that were all this lady had. And so that's the, the acknowledgement that Jesus makes. He honors this woman because of her sacrificial and, and generous giving. I think we can acknowledge one more aspect of this woman's giving, and that is inferred from her situation, though it doesn't explicitly say it, is the fact that she gives this in faith. Because it, it points out and explicitly says at the end of verse four, she put in all that she had to live on. She had given everything that she had to live on. So certainly she had daily needs. There were necessities in her life. And yet we assume that she trusted God and said, God will take care of me. God will provide the things I need. 
And so I can give these last two coins. Now, here's a key thing, okay? Because, man, it's so easy to get in trouble in a sermon about giving, okay? Because this is what usually happens. About this time, that we're going two different ways in people's heads. About half of y'all are going, man, another sermon about money. Church is always asking for money. That's how churches are. They're just always asking for money. Man, I can't believe this church asks for money, okay? That's the way half of them's going. And then the other half is going, man, I feel so guilty that I don't give more. I'll bet you God loves other people more than he loves me because they give faithfully and I don't give enough, right? So we have this problem where when you talk about giving, it's easy to basically go, man, all I'm doing is like helping to harden the hearts of the hard-hearted and, and, and just hurting the hearts that are already tender and afflicted, okay? And that's not the idea for either of these things, okay? Because we're not shooting for that. This isn't an issue of moralism. It's not an issue of legalism. It's an issue of faith, of trusting in God and and giving in trusting in God. So again, I think the case would be is if these scribes and Pharisees had come to this poor widow woman and said, it is your job to give your last two coins to the temple, that would be wicked, right? We would call that wicked. It sounds like the prosperity preachers pulling in money from the poor so that they can live at at whatever level, okay? It would be wicked for the religious leaders to do that. And yet, because this woman gives out of her love, gives out of her own devotion, God honors it and, and calls it good and noble and righteous. But this woman is trusting that God is going to take care of her. She believes that God will meet her needs, provide for her, because she knows God is faithful. And God is always faithful to his people and cares for his people. And so the reality is, is that all of these things, all the time, in any kind of sacrifice, it takes faith. If you sacrifice anything, it requires faith. Whether you're sacrificing for your family, whether you are going to the mission field and sacrificing in some way, whether you are giving your life to Christ, you are sacrificing something, but you're doing all of those things in faith because you're saying, We can have faith and hope that God is going to be here, that it will be worth it, that God will take our offering, that he will make it whole, that any small thing that we give him, he will make it complete. And in the end, he will make all things good. Again, we don't do this out of legalism. We do it in an act of imitating the character of Jesus Christ. Because that's what we come to at the end. We see the character of Christ in this woman because this is the way Jesus has acted to us. Jesus comes in humility as well. Jesus gives in humility. Jesus steps into our world, not in opulence, not in grandeur, even though he deserves those things. He comes not in flowing robes, right? Seeking adulation the way the Pharisees and the scribes do. No, he comes in humility. He comes even in deprivation, not just humility, but deprived. He says, the son of man has no place to lay his head. He's not born in the palace of a king. He's born in a barn with animals all around him. Jesus comes in humility too, as this, as this poor widow woman has. And Jesus ends his life not just in humility, but in sacrifice. And not just sacrifice, but ultimate sacrifice of his own blood of his own life poured out for his people. Not a proportional act, right? 
Jesus' sacrifice for us is not proportional. He doesn't say, let's see here, I think I could give about 10% of myself to save these people. That's not what Jesus does. It is far more than generous also. But it is a sacrifice of everything. As Jesus goes to the cross, he sacrifices reputation, honor, dignity, life. He sacrifices even the sweet fellowship that he has with the Father and has had for all eternity. And in all these things, Jesus acts in faith, just as this widow woman does. He submits himself to the sacrifice. Why? Because he knows that God is trustworthy. He knows that God is capable and willing and loving and that he will see these things through to the end. And he will set all things to right in the end. And that's the Savior that that we begin to think about in Advent. That is the Savior that we worship. That is the Savior who we honor. That is the Savior who we remember his coming during this season. And it's the Savior that this woman, obviously she didn't know who Jesus was yet, probably, and yet God is moving in her heart to such an extent that she is already Imaging the character of Jesus Christ. And Jesus notices it and he honors her in that. So what I want to do is we're going to close. Uh, we're going to go to the Lord in a time of prayer. And so I hope that you will just um, consider these things. All right. Um, we talk about giving. We've talked about giving in the last few weeks. We've talked about it at business meeting. We've talked about it in our small groups. Um, uh, giving is always an issue. And so I'm not particularly asking for anything from anybody, right? But I hope that we will remember these principles of proportionality, of generosity, and even of maybe sacrifice in some cases. I hope that as we give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering in the next few weeks, that we will remember these principles, that we will look to those things and say, you know what? Um, and I've got a lot of bills right now. I've bought a lot of Christmas stuff and I've got all the other things. There are all these normal things that have have come up. And yet we have an opportunity to serve the kingdom of Christ through our gifts, through our giving, proportionally, generously, and even sacrificially. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask that he would work these things in our hearts. Ask that in each person's situation, he would call us to whatever he's calling us to. Because I don't think there's probably a formula. There's not a one size fits all for every person in this room. God is working in each of our lives and each of our families and each of our finances in his, in his own ways. But ask that God would convict us. Ask that God would show us what he wants us to do uh, and that he would lead us in those things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, you have so graciously given to us through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. God, you have given the most precious gift so that we might know your peace and forgiveness. God, your son, Jesus Christ, has come into the world to save us by giving everything. God, we ask that our hearts would be as generous, 
they would be as sacrificial. God, that our giving would be a thermometer of the devotion that you are working in our own hearts towards you. God, not the only image of that devotion. God, we ask that you would work in us the the goodness of giving our time, giving our attention. God, that we would be devoted to the things that you have called us to be devoted to. God, that we would have a heart and a concern for the hundreds of millions of people, the billions of people around the world who uh, will live their entire lives uh, and never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, who will not know uh, the hope and the peace and the forgiveness that can come through knowing Jesus Christ. God, give us a heart for those people that we would want to serve them through our gifts, through our prayers, and through our very lives. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, it is sad.
your children to say yay at the end of every I mean, that'd be great. So that's why we're having a baby dedication today. Okay. Um, if you're not saying your church isn't saying yay, it's dying. Right. Um, and so, uh, so this is what we're going to do. Um, what I want to do is have the, the parents who's, uh, who are having a baby, uh, dedicated today. What I want you to do is come up here and line up across the front and bring with you one of these little pieces of paper that you see on your seats. Again, we were joking earlier. Uh, Trent was was making a comment how we've got a number of kids uh, who who couldn't be here today because they were sick. Um, uh, Trent's new baby is one of them, and but we just recently talked about when you celebrated the Passover, there was a specific day that you could celebrate the Passover on, and then the Bible was like, but if you happen to be traveling on that day, one month later on the same date, you can celebrate it then, and it looks like that's probably what we're going to end up doing is having another baby dedication in about a month um, that we can that we can celebrate with these families who have got sick little ones, um, but this is what I'd like to do. So when we go to the New Testament, we don't specifically see the concept of a baby dedication, okay? It's not like something that is commanded in the scriptures, but the idea is consistent um, with the very idea of covenant that we believe in, okay? And so the very, I almost thought about the fact that, you know, what we could do when we come and have a baby dedication, we could just read our church covenant, out because the promises that we make to each other are the same promises that we are making to our children um, and, and, and for their lives. But what we're going to do is, so congregation, I would ask that you would read along with us in the first two. So we're just going to read these things together. If you would read along in the first two uh, uh, statements there at the top, uh, and everybody read those, parents and congregation, and then for the second uh, set that where it says parents, just the parents up here will will um, recite those, okay? So we'll just read them along together. So congregation, today we recognize these children as the gifts of God and give heartfelt thanks for God's blessing. We promise with God's help to make it our regular prayer that by God's grace, these children will come to trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins and for the fulfillment of all his promises to them, even eternal life. And in this faith, follow Jesus as Lord. Parents, 
We dedicate our children to the Lord who gave them to us, surrendering all worldly claims upon their lives in the hope that they will belong wholly to God. We pledge as parents that with God's fatherly help, we will bring up these children in discipline and instruction of the Lord, making every reasonable effort with patience and love to teach the word of God, the character of Christ, and the joy of the Lord into their lives. We promise to provide for God's blessing for the physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual needs of these children, looking to our own Heavenly Father for the wisdom, love, and strength to serve them. Amen? Uh, that we talk about it all the time. Um, we are so thankful for the fact that we, there are so many churches around, right? We have our own problems. We've got our own issues. Um, uh, we, we, we want for some mature believers in our church. We want some people who are a few years down the road, but we also know that, man, there are so many churches uh, in our community and across the country who are looking out. And as the congregation is getting older and there are fewer families and fewer children in those congregations. And so we are so thankful to God um, that he is blessing us through um, having Having, having all these new additions to to our church, so we thank him, we praise him for these things. Um, and again, congregation, we are uh, we are in this together, right? We are um, committing our lives to each other and to help to to serve these families and to be a part of of uh, raising these children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So, Amen. Um, well, uh, you can come and, and it's, it's sort of weird because you've probably all congratulated. Some of these babies are like almost grown now. So they've, uh, you know, we've, uh, we've been a little slow in getting, getting to our, our baby dedication. So, but you can come and congratulate them and encourage them and, um, uh, and we'll be dismissed. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.